3CR would like to acknowledge that we broadcast on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Bururong people of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nations people in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8:30 a.m. Good morning and welcome to Thursday Breakfast. Good morning, Katia. Good morning, Ace. Good morning. Good morning. Sorry, I should say a patch. I should call, call you by your proper name. Let's try to alternate <laughs> both names. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what do we have on our show today? Well, uh, this morning I think we're going to start off with a little bit of music and then we'll go into some alternative news, talking about uh, new police powers to essentially... Uh, get DNA samples from people that uh, are suspected of committing an offence but haven't yet been charged without a court order. And then we're going to talk to somebody about uh, plastic, a plastic processing plant um, to process plastic and waste tyres into oil. Um, then we'll have Jeswin, who's a reoccurring um, feature, um, and he's a law lecturer, um, and he'll be talking about the global impact on refugees. Um, and then we have um, uh, someone to come on and talk about um, a film screening about Western Sahara. And and then we will have um, somebody coming in to speak with us from Hospo Voice about uh, the new union for hospitality workers. But we're going to start with a song first. From a private life so public as the tabloids caught your tears being photographed How sad. How tragic. But it doesn't have to be that way on the Burning Vinyl Alternative Music Program. Burning Vinyl, Fridays, 2 till 4pm on 3CR. Located in the heart of Thornbury, the Islamic Museum of Australia showcases the cultural and artistic heritage of Australian Muslims. Don't miss our latest youth-based exhibition, Ways to be Muslim, and immerse yourself in a series of photographic portraits and unique personal narratives. This exhibition is hosted in partnership with Muslim Collective and the Victorian State Government and is showing until July 8th. Visit the museum website for more information. The Islamic Museum of Australia is a 3CR supporter.
And that was Horizon by Beaches. So up next we're going to do a little bit of alternative news and we're talking about new laws uh, that will be introduced to for the for police officers to be able to take DNA samples from uh, people that are not yet or maybe are suspected of committing an offence but are not yet charged. So, so what are, do, do you know what the current laws are? Yes, yeah, so the current laws are... So the current laws, if a person is suspected of um, committing an indictable offence, they can have DNA samples taken from them, um, or if they've been charged with an indictable offence, uh, or if they've been summoned to answer for an indictable offence. Now, uh, and also, generally that involves uh, a suspect having to give their informed consent um, or a court order being made. So this would take away the, uh, I guess, this would take away the power for, uh, I guess, the, the power for the courts to be able to determine when a person should, be, should have to give over their DNA samples or also, um, I guess, that informed consent. So it'll essentially bring the DNA laws in line with current fingerprinting laws where if a person uh, is charged with an offence and they're, they're taken into police custody for questioning, police officers can take their fingerprint samples with, um, even if that person is not consenting, they can use reasonable force to take that person's fingerprint samples. So I guess the DNA laws will come into line with the fingerprint, current fingerprinting laws. However... I guess there's now a question of whether we're, how we're extending police powers um, and what kind of implications this might have for civil liberties as well. Mm. Um, especially since, so um, earlier this year, um, Victoria Police flagged the possibility of arming sort of frontline officers with um, sort of military grade weaponry, so military grade uh, rifles. Um, so it's, it's, it's part of a broader a broader militarisation and securitisation um, of the state, um, which I find kind of worrying. <laughs> um, um, and so the Victor- yeah, because it's not just Victoria. So that the the militarisation, like the the rifles, the military grade rifles that they want to introduce uh, to just um, normal officers, um, it comes after um, Queensland Police um, called for um, the same thing. Um, before. I'm not too sure when they did that, but yeah, um, they did um, call for military rifles to be issued to general duty officers. Um, and yeah, it's not, and it's not just Australia. So as we, you know, recently with the ICE stuff that's happening in um, the police ICE units in um, in the states, um, and it, well, it's been a part of a broader trench trend since 9/11, pretty much um, since securitization discourse became. Um, quite popularised. So, um, yeah, it's also... Um, I I was <laughs> doing a bit of research um, into border walls last night because I was uh, Googling just random <laughs> stuff. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's... Um, uh, at the end of the Cold War, um, so 1989, um, there were just 15... Uh, with the, you know, the falling... the taking down of the Berlin Wall, there was 15 border walls around the world and now there's 70 of them and most of them have been um, erected uh, since um, 9-11 or since, you know, in the past 15 to 20 years um, 
which is um, seem to be yeah. heading the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it's it's become a sort of new standard because in in the early nineties, um, the it wasn't it was definitely not popular having border walls, especially you know just after the Cold War, um, and it's. Yeah, definitely since the the war of war on terror and this whole terrorized, um, terrorist discourse and having to secure your citizen, like, I mean, that's, you know, we're doing this for your security. We're doing this for, um, you know, whatever else that they use. <laughs> um, it's um, the stigma of building the wall has been removed. almost feels like a, um, a long con, doesn't it? Like a setup even by... Um our politicians, and we see all the um, the recent political campaigns, how they're just campaigning on fear and scaring people, saying, oh, look, crime is up, or there's um, a big threat, terrorism threat, or our national security is under threat, and things like that. And I, I think it's it's been, it's been set up um, since the campaigning started years ago, and mm. I think this is the result. Um, giving more powers to police because then when we ask why, they'll be like, well, our security has been under threat for years. Mm. Um, this is to protect you and everything. But, um, yeah, it's, it's weird. It doesn't feel like that, does it? Um, what if? <laughs> it's, um, yeah, so I, I'm just saying it's if, if we're trying to find solutions for um, security issues and things like that, I don't think it starts with giving police more powers. Um, I think the powers that are in place or the um, laws that are currently in place are sufficient. They just need to be um, enforced and in in context as well. Mm. Um, so. uh, I'm a bit worried by um, the enforcement thing <laughs> you just said. <laughs> no, no, well... I don't think anything should be. No, I, I think I think like, we just to find to, to even find a balance. Yeah. We, we we can't say we don't um, we don't agree with all uh, all of these laws. I mean, there has to be a compromise uh-huh. somewhere. Um, but it's why giving up too much um, too much liberty. I think it's it's giving too much power to the state and yeah, less to so the people who who need it. And mm-hmm. yeah, so. um, up next we've got. Um, Sanka um, Bhattacharya, who's a professor at Monash uh, University. Yes, that's um, right. I think we're going to go to a yeah. short community service announcement and then we'll come back with Sanka. Great. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. You're on 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital and uh, 3cr.org.au. So next up we have Sankar uh, Bhattacharya. Sankar is a professor of 
chemical engineering at Monash University. And his research explores coal and biomass utilisation for power, and he's currently working on a prototype processing plant that turns plastic waste and sorry, plastic and waste tyres into diesel fuel. So in January of this year, China implemented import restrictions on recyclable materials, and many Western countries, including Australia, uh, export large quantities of waste products into China for recycling. So this embargo has seen countries around the world scramble to put into place stopgap measures uh, until more long-term solutions are put in place. So hello, Sanka, are you there? Oh, hello. Good morning. Uh, good morning. This is Katya. Uh, good morning, Katya, and, uh, and good morning to your audience. Thank you. So, Sankar, first I thought we might start off with talking a little bit about the uh, embargo on waste, which China implemented earlier this year. So there's um, waste restrictions on certain recyclables and in terms of their, their contamination content and what China will allow uh, to be exported or imported into the state. So can you sort of fill us in a little bit on why that happened? Uh, yes, um, so China had been uh, importing all sorts of recyclables, um, uh, excluding the food waste, of course, but also including uh, the waste plastics and uh, electronic waste, etc., from uh, the EU, from the US, from UK, from Australia, from Japan, all sorts of countries. And uh, <clears throat> uh, that obviously uh, could not continue unabated. So uh, simply because their, um, uh, uh, they also generate significant amount of waste themselves and the imported ones were piling up. So what they have done is they have put the restriction on 24 different kinds of um, recyc- imported recyclable materials from the world and, uh, and, and have imposed a very, very strict um, cleaning requirement or, and sorting requirement before they would accept anything, which none of the facilities in this country, uh, in Australia, um, are uh, capable of uh, cleaning to the requirement that China has now demanded. So it's not just the waste plastics, but it's 24 different kinds of uh, uh, recyclable materials or the waste materials that they were importing uh, for years now. Right. And just in terms of context, globally, a lot of nations around the world actually import waste from Western countries or countries that, are, I guess, are more industrialised and have more waste products. So this is, um, it's not just really China that takes a lot of waste, it's other countries around the world too. That's true. That's true. Some of the um, Asian countries, um, they also import and uh, uh, responding to the ban in China, uh, uh, Netherlands uh, have, uh, has also uh, started importing uh, in limited quantities uh, from the neighboring countries. And uh, uh, importing um, waste materials and then processing in the Scandinavian countries is, has been practiced for a number of years now. Um, they have centralized facilities in one country, and uh, because of the geographical proximity uh, amongst those countries, it's uh, rather easy to truck them or uh, train them uh, by, uh, I mean, transporting them by train to centralized facilities for processing the uh, waste materials or, or the garbage, as we can sometimes call them. Hmm. And 
when a, a country like China puts an embargo on waste, what does that mean? And at, at the moment, what does that mean for Australia? Well, I see that to be an opportunity, frankly speaking, uh, because this gives us an opportunity now to raise the awareness of uh, what was happening to our waste. I don't think very many of our uh, um, uh, citizens were aware that we had been exporting so much of waste into into other countries. Um, and so it is, number one, it raises the awareness uh, that we have to do something with our waste here in Australia. And then secondly, it also raises the awareness that can we reduce the uh, quantity of the uh, of some of the recyclable materials that we use day in, day out. Um, for example, see our packaging in the setting. There is a lot that we should be able to do there. So awareness... Uh, amongst the consumer, uh, in the minds of the consumers for reducing the recyclable materials or for the waste in general. And third and most importantly, as I see, is to develop a, an industry here locally in Australia, in various parts of Australia, uh, to process the waste materials. And that way we should be um, doing two things. We should be obviously generating employment uh, locally and uh, more importantly we'll be diverting a lot of the waste which currently go into the landfill. And you're actually working on something at the moment in terms of a a prototype processing plant for plastic waste, is that right? That's correct. So we have been working for a, a number of years now, more than six years, Uh, on uh, waste plastics. By waste plastics, we mean plastics is a very very generic term. There are all different sorts of plastics, uh, polyethylene, polystyrene, uh, uh, the the PET, the milk bottles, uh, which are different kinds of plastics, the PVC, the polyvinyl chloride, is the different kinds of plastics. And we are also we also have started working on tires. Uh, I'll talk about the tires later on. And with uh, local industry support, the industry uh, which was previously sending electronic waste into other countries, electronic waste from Victoria, we are also working with them to um, extract. Uh, the value, high value metals from the electronic waste. So we are working on waste plastics, the waste tires, as well as electronic waste. And some of my colleagues in our Department of Chemical Engineering also working on food waste. But as far as I am concerned, I see the processing of waste plastics and the waste tires are the lowest hanging fruit. We have the technology here to um, uh, take it to the next stage, I mean, the pilot and the demonstration um, uh, scale here. And how, because I know that the the products, I guess, that are produced from the plastic processing plant are things like um, power energy, uh, oil, is that right, and diesel fuel? That's right. And so how, how does the process actually work? Okay, so plastics... Um, as we currently use them, uh, these plastics originated from uh, petroleum, if you like. 
So petroleum is nothing but a mix of carbon and hydrogen and uh, connected into long chains, if I can um, say that in very simple terms. Um, so when petroleum is mined, crude petroleum is mined, and then it, it is processed, then you get the gasoline, you get the aviation fuel, you get the petrol, you get the uh, diesel, you get the lubricant, uh, and then finally what remains, you get the, um, the bitumen, and uh, then you get uh, whatever the remnants are. Uh, from there you make the uh, plastics. Uh, in a, in, a, in, a, in a very crude uh, description, um, uh, descriptive form, what I say, that's how it is made. So plastics are made from the petroleum, crude uh, petroleum in the first place. So what we're saying is that plastics is such a homogeneous substance in many ways compared to, say, coal or biomass, that it can be uh, converted back into liquid fuel, which can be either petrol or diesel, depending on how much of the inherent energy in the plastics that you are able to use up. Mm-hmm. So the way it is converted is um, the plastics are subjected to um, moderate temperatures, about 350 to 400 degrees Celsius, which is, when I say moderate, it's moderate by uh, the uh, temperature, moderate in comparison to the temperatures used in the petrochemical industries, for example, or in the power industries. So three to three to 400 degrees centigrade, these are um, uh, processed, and these are then broken down into shorter chain um, hydrocarbons, as we call it, a mix of carbon and hydrogen. And then uh, you can then further break them down to either diesel or petrol, depending on what you want, by the use of what we call catalysts. So part of the energy which is embedded in the plastics can be used to sustain that process. So it is, it is moderate temperature processing followed by catalysis. That's what gives you the liquid fuel. Mm. And so, and I guess one of the the negative impacts of having so much plastic waste is that to reuse plastic, we do have to turn it back into a, a petrochemical product. So it's it's so is there? I guess what I'm asking is one of the downsides of this type of pro- plastic processing is that it's still kind of quite harmful on the environment in terms of we're still using petroleum-based products. Well, in, uh, you are, you are you are right. Until I think the final solution, the ultimate solution, has to be uh, complete. Um, uh, you know, uh, non-use of petrochemical derived plastics, uh, but um, by, by what? By say biodegrade, biodegradable plastics. The um, the know-how is there. It's just that it's currently not uh, economic. But then, with time, with the right policy drivers, etc. Uh, the biodegradable plastics will gradually become more of a norm rather than um, exception. But until that happens, and we have lots of plastics, we continue to use plastics even though uh, in a reduced scale, we have to do something about it. So what I'm saying is, um, obviously, uh, a very small fraction of the 60,000 tons worth of plastics that we generate here in Victoria every year. Was that 60,000 tons? 
of plastic. Of plastic, well, that's a lot of plastic. <laughs> that's a lot of plastic, a lot of plastics in packaging, in, um, uh, you know, in um, utensils, in uh, furniture, you name it. And the mechanically, uh, a small fraction of it is correct, uh, currently recycled back into other products. But just to give you an example, if you um, take a polyethylene-based chair, plastic chair, for example, it can, you can at most uh, recycle it eight or nine times before you uh, back into another product, another solid product, before it cannot be recycled anymore because it becomes so much brittle. So um, in a way, until such time the society gets fully um, uh, conversant with the use of biodegradable plastics, we should do in the short term or the short to intermediate term something with uh, about the petroleum-based plastics that we have accumulated over the years and that we still are uh, accumulating every year. So what I'm saying is that you can recycle it umpteenth times into liquid fuels. And um, and then there are other ways, of course. Uh, of course, that will when you recycle it into liquid fuel, you burn it in a diesel engine or somewhere, you will be generating CO2. That, that absolutely no doubt about it. And we know that it's a harmful gas. But technologies are also coming up now to recycle the um, CO2 back into something else, either liquid fuel, so uh, either liquid fuel or into chemicals. And uh, that's very well known. It's, it's just that it is currently not economic. Mm. So uh, what I'm saying is that the recycling of the plastics into solid products has its limitation, but it will have a small place uh, into the product mix, but also a big uh, part in the product mix after recycling the plastics would be and should be uh, the liquid fuels. And it can be recycled, the plastics can be recycled in definite times back into the liquid field until we are completely become, uh, we discard plastics use completely or as much as possible. Well, thank you, Sankar, so much for talking with us about that. We're just out of time. Before you leave, if people are interested uh, in I guess having a bit of a further read or look into the protest, the prototype plant, where can right. they go? They can go to Monash University's website and then type plastics or my name and then it will take them to a um, site and from there I can be contacted. People are uh, uh, most welcome to visit us at Monash and then discuss with us and see what we are doing and how you are, we are doing it. All I want is the is an increased awareness amongst our citizens about the use or the destructive use of the plastics. Excellent. Thank you so much, Sankar, for talking with us today. Okay. Thank you very much. Bye. The Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is continuing its Stop Failing Our Kids campaign until this year's Victorian state election. We're asking people to sign an online petition and to send postcards to Premier Daniel Andrews, calling for his government to abandon plans to build a $288 million youth prison at Cherry Creek. We want that money directed to culturally appropriate programs to address the underpinning issues rather than incarcerating children. 
For more information and to sign the petition, visit Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Postcards are available at 3CR and locations listed at istramelbourne.com. Premier, it's time your government stopped failing the kids. Istra Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 94198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to. You're on 3CR, 855 AM. It's currently 7.35 uh, AM. And we have Jeswin Yogaratnam back in the studio with us this week. So if you were listening in uh, two weeks ago, we started off what will be a series of conversations with Jeswin about uh, the global... Compact on Refugees, uh, which is which will be coming out later on this year. And it was uh, something that came about after the 2016 uh, UN uh, meeting on, and Jeswin will talk a little bit more about this, on um, the Declaration for the Rights of Refugees. Is that right, Jez? Have I got that right? Yes. No, and that was also in the context of, like, so a lot of refugees were entering Europe. Um, yes. And that's sort of, even though Europe only... I think it's about six percent. Only hosts about six percent of the world's yeah. <laughs> refugees. Uh, there was because it was on Europe's doorstep. It got a lot of attention. That's yes, right. that's right. Just about the time the Syria uh, whole exodus of refugees, and also many of those that were, you know, had incidents in, in sea. So all that became an issue in terms of how do we deal with this, um, especially when many of the member states were not dealing with it in a way which protracted some of the detention situations in some of the nations. Mm. And what do you mean by that? Like, what, what, which member states? Oh, well, you know, those, um, those that have, for example, the responsibility so having signed up to the, the Refugee Convention, one, um, where they, there is an obligation of protection, um, an obligation to sort of, you know, um, um, allow the passage of, of those coming in. However, it seemed to be the case that there was a case of actually pushing them back, for example, um, this happened here even in Australia, but also in countries like Malaysia who are following, I guess, you know, uh, uh, the big brothers in, around the region in terms of what were the current trends. Um, and, seemed to, and it seemed to be acceptable. And I think that's where it sort of becomes rather curious in terms of the protection obligations. Um, having said that, I'd like just to preface that today we are, this week we are actually celebrating, not celebrating, but we are actually taking note that it's Refugee Week. Uh, and the team for Refugee Week this this week or this year in 2018 is with us, and I think it's an important thing to ref- important point to reflect on when we talk when we think about the theme with us, because there are various elements of with us in terms of refugees that um, you know that, c- that we can think about, but we don't necessarily perhaps uh, wish to in the whole extent. Uh, what am I saying? I'm saying that we think about with us. Mm-hmm. Are we with? Mm-hmm. Are we with them in the context of 
their protection obligations? Are we with them in the context of uh, their rights uh, when they do sort of reach a host country? Are we with them in the context of what they're going through in the context of the detention offshore? Uh, so there are various elements to it. And I think my simple answer to it would be we have to be unequivocal about the with us. Otherwise, that in itself creates lots of inroads into various violations in itself. And, and not just during refugee week. Exactly. Uh, yeah, well, as, as, so um, some figures. So UNHCR um, says that about 65, uh, 68.5 million forcibly displaced people worldwide. Um, and that includes 40 million internally displaced people, 25 Point four million refugees and thirty-one point, oh, uh, million asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, how do these? I suppose, uh, how would the global compact um, deal with m- more forcibly displaced people? Because I think about two years ago it was sixty-five million, and now it's sixty-eight. Well, good point. I think there are a few things to unpack from that question. Uh, first, of, first of all, in the, in the context of the, the term that was used, forced to displace people. Now, one of the problems with the Refugee Convention 1951 is the interpretation in terms of refugees. And you'd note that, for example, climate change, uh, I won't call them refugees, but those who are affected by climate change, for example, do not fall in that category. They are forcibly, uh, you know, they, 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 they are people who will be, you know, subject to forcible move as a result of the conditions of uh, affecting their climate, but they will not be considered as refugees for purposes of the convention. And here's where the Global Compact can make a difference in the way in which it perhaps uses different terminology uh, quite tacitly, uh, which then allows that cohort of people to be, you know, provided protection obligations. Um, so in that context, that's, in that context, the Global Compact is responding to the broader cohort of U1 of those who require protection obligations, number one. Uh, in, uh, that aside, you'll find that because there are two aspects to the compact, one is in relation to migration, one is in relation to refugees. Uh, in relation to refugees, they're looking at providing more durable solutions, for example. And what, what's that mean? That means, for example, uh, the way in which funding arrangements are entered into both from an international and domestic context. They are activating development actors and humanitarian actors to all come together as opposed to work you know, separately, because sometimes there's non-cohesion of how we work together or not together uh, can in itself, uh, you know, create its, its own little sort of, uh, you know, problems. Um, so the Global Compact sort of calls for development actors uh, to come together in that context with humanitarian actors and the state and all the other agencies that are involved um, in order to operationalize, I think, something that's more workable uh, and and has... And provides, I think, number one, that protection obligation, but also uh, the rights of refugees in that context. And, and, and perhaps one of the things that's maybe lacking so much in the, glo- in the global compact in itself is spelling out the rights more clearly. Okay, because one, one thing we, we note that while the Ref- Refugee Convention makes reference to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, it's a very broad document, um, uh, there isn't something that really looks into the well-being and their ability to achieve self-reliance. Uh, and perhaps spelling that out in terms of rights, you know, uh, through the compact in, 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 uh, would, would be quite useful. In regards to rights, 
Is it because I know that um, there's a, the Caldor Centre for uh, Sorry, is it Refugee Law? Caldor Centre for Refugee Law? The Caldor Centre of UNSW, yes, yes that's yes. right. Uh, has made some recommendations yes. towards the Global Compact. Uh, and one of those was rights, and it suggested that rights, I guess there's particular kinds of rights which are more, um, I guess, aligned with the needs of people seeking asylum. So is that is that correct? Is that sort of the correct interpretation of what the Caldor... Yeah, so I think what, what the Caldor Centre, they worked with uh, um, uh, in relation with the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility um, and they came up with the Policy Brief 6 and part of that Policy Brief 6 did include uh, you know, some of the recommendations um, uh, which included things like rights and I think here we're talking more about the very basic rights in terms of their right to work their right to health um, and I think one of the recommendations that was put forward in that policy brief, which is partly uh, by the Carlos Alta and, the, and those that they hosted, was uh, to include targets relating to health and education, work opportunities, um, and, 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 and achievement of durable solutions. So I guess the question is, how do we achieve these targets and how do we place these targets is, is, you know, is something that we need to think about. And here's where the, the compact in itself provides, I think, that uh, mechanism uh, in order for us to to reach some form of cooperation uh, in terms of expressly recognizing these rights, but also then in terms of the cooperation that member states need to, to achieve uh, in terms of determining these targets. Now, I think that the other question that or what we need to think about in terms of then achieving targets is who's going to... Who is going to monitor the mm-hmm. fact that we are achieving these targets? We know such, I mean, we've heard of things like the emission trading scheme and things like that, and, and that in itself is another whole basket of issues there in terms of monitoring and, 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 and keeping an eye. In terms, of, in terms of targets relating, for example, health, now in Australia at some point, uh, we had, for example, the Detention Health Advisory Group, DHUG, which was then bec- made defunct uh, because actually they were perhaps unveiling a lot of what was happening in detention from a health perspective. So what we need to, what we need to also understand is that we, when we are going to promote uh, targets, for example, or, and, and, you know, uh, and, and, and provide the, rest, the relevant steps in terms of achieving these targets, we need to have the relevant bodies that are monitoring them. Um, and, and just because they are monitoring the context of of what's happening in detention, either poor health standards, etc., or excellent health standards, etc., we need to maintain that body as an independent body uh, in order to keep some form of accountability. Mm. And, and I guess accountability is one of the other targets yes. that uh, was in the report, uh, and it was a accountability of all stakeholders. Uh, and so I guess in the same way that would also need to be regulated. So I guess actually what does accountability mean? Now, so good point that you noted, so accountability of stakeholders. So what we're talking about, there's a whole, there's a whole I think, range and tranche of stakeholders involved in the context of protection obligations of refugees. Let's just take, for example, an offshore detention centre. Okay, so first of all, we're, we're looking at, well, uh, for example, Australia was involved in that, tra- in that transfer of asylum seekers in Australia as a state, state responsibility. 
Uh, if you're looking at the other member state, for example, Papua New Guinea, where, it's being, where the, they're being transferred, for example, to Manus Island, we're looking also at the private enterprises that are given these contracts to then maintain detention centres. They actually are stakeholders in this whole regime, you know, because there is some form of accountability if they're not actually... Um, operationalizing uh, the, the various, uh, um, you know, whether it's healthcare or food or uh, well-being of, of refugees, uh, because that is part of the job. Uh, so they become part of these stakeholders, and the question is, how you know are they responsible? And here's where we need to then consider the from an international law perspective, for example, the whole concept of state responsibility and, the attrib- and whether or not they're attributable uh, as a result of the agreements that they enter into Australia. But interestingly also, uh, when we talk about stakeholders and we talk about the whole state, for example, Papua New Guinea, now what caused the whole shutdown of that, of that detention centre in Papua New Guinea in Manus Island? It was the Supreme Court of Papua New Guinea. So they became a highly accountable, they made the state become accountable by calling out on the various breaches of international law. Uh, and interestingly, the, 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 the Supreme Court did uh, make reference to the whole ref, uh, aspect of dignity and the way in which people are dealt with or treated in such centres. It's not being uh, upheld, uh, aside from all the other various rights uh, that was raised uh, by the Supreme Court. It was the Supreme Court of that, very, of that very member state in itself that called for the closure. And of course, at the end of the day, it's the people, because we know that the people in Papua, in Manus, for example, were not all that delighted to have this center set up there when, they, when there were a number of issues occurring. First of all, the awareness of breach of rights, but also the awareness of perhaps not adjusting to the fact that there are these other cohort of people who are quite different from them. And and uh, and, uh, and you know which will affect some f- in the long term social cohesion, uh, and and create other issues in terms of you know the fact that they want customary land you know so there's a lot of things that happen when when one sort of op- try to operationalize such a transfer and you know establish such a center in another in another space another country without really sort of having those deep conversations with the people. Because you know, very quickly the people will sort of you know not not welcome uh, uh, that form of uh, um, you know I guess transfer more so when there's knowledge in terms of the fact that rights are not taken care of children, especially in relation to children and women who you know who, uh, who where we've heard about a number of stories about the trauma that has been affected as a result of you know indefinite detention, but also just in terms of kept there being kept there you know without necessary well-being. T- but even this whole idea of, of, of so Australia's like um, horrible laws of like um, offshore detention, um, doesn't that take away from the responsibility that Australia as a... Well, not, yeah, it's a good question. It's not necessarily actually. So it all, it all depends. So, so in international law, we've got this thing called state responsibility. And, uh, you know, it's a, question, it's a question of how much control, for example, the state has over that particular um, arrangement. And, for example, if Australia was actually then providing the services or through its own uh, subcontract through, for example, you know, Wilson or G4S, as they were known before, uh, or Transfield Corporation who are providing those services, you know, in, in those detention centres, then there's some element of control uh, in the way in which Australia is, is sort of, in a way, uh, caretaking that whole establishment. Uh, which then has some level of attribut- 
attribution back to the state. So, look, there are academic arguments in that sense, and there, but I think which which clearly does sort of achieve some form of attribute um, state responsibility, uh, and thereby, you know, the larger question of whether or not there's been a breach uh, would be, you know, surfaced again. I, just going also back to one of just what you were talking about just before that um, question around the Supreme Court uh, actually coming out and making uh, a judgment that made Manus basically illegal and shut down that yeah. camp. Um, and here in Australia, there's been a number of high court challenges around different things to do with, um, you know, the Malaysia solution, which was a, quite a few years ago now, and citizenship cases, and sometimes those cases are successful. Um, but then uh, there's often a kind of a, a double-edged sword where you get either a case being successful and a government uh, coming in and then re-legislating mm. to close the gaps around mm. what was made illegal. Yeah. Or you get a court which at times, a high court bench which might be um, kind of moderate or quite black letter in the way they interpret mm. laws, which then mm. there's no creativity to sort of infuse mm. human rights into the judgments. So I, th- I guess in a way, is there a, is there a risk that when we rely on st- you know, state or citizenship institutions to do do this work it sort of cannot work. It's a it's a good observation and a valid observation. And I think uh, you know, just uh, listening to you, two cases come to mind. One is the M70 demolition solution case, and the other is the CPCF case, which dealt with Sri Lankans that were held uh, of you know uh, in detention for a while. Off sh- um, now. Yes, you're right. So in the context of the Malaysian solution case, um, look, it was successful in the context of the fact that the, at that time it was Chief Justice French who was uh, presiding, and, and he looked at the legislation, the Migration Act of 98, and he looked at the relevant provisions, which provided for the, the fact that human rights standards should be adhered to in the context of these transfers that are taking place. And upon observation, noted that in the context of Malaysia, that would be a problem in terms of achieving those standards. Uh, and I think importantly, I think what Chief Justice French noted in that particular case was, look, while member states can have a handshake and uh, saying that we will take into context the protection obligations of those that we transfer, more has to happen on the ground. And uh, aside from just these political you know, uh, handshakes in terms of what the agreement is, and and there and there is where uh, it was noted that, for example, that at that point of time, uh, you know, there were there was evidence that you know the way in which uh, asylum seekers were treated in Malaysia, um, the fact that you know there were all these laws which allowed for caning, etc., et um, uh, which then kind of did not make 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 it seem that it was the right place for purposes of actually enhan- uh, protecting these rights, let alone allowing the rights to you know, uh, be upheld. Uh, so in that particular case, it was a win for uh, asylum seekers in, in, the, in the context that the swap did not take place. But what happened after that was that they then amended the Migration Act, which removed that very section, which Chief Justice French and some of the other judges l- referred to, um, uh, so, for, uh, which which really actually meant that the, one of the only provisions in that act which allowed for the human rights standards to be considered in the context of transfer to another state, that whole provision was removed. 
So we do not have that protection obligation anymore in that context. So in, in which case, if another case like the Malaysian solution were to come about, that law, although we have a good decision from that high court case, um, there is no provision for an, another judge to rely on. Now, in saying that, look, at the end of the day, judges have to sort of, you know, while they can be dynamic, they, they are also subject to uh, the fact that, you know, they're judicial officers and they're subject to the law. Uh, and what does the law provide in that context is by way of making reference to legislation. Yes, there's a move in Australia in the context of the literal interpretation. Um, and I think uh, judges are heading back to the, towards that form of, I think, in, uh, you know, uh, approach, uh, only because uh, the fact that they are bound uh, by by these rules in the context of uh, you know, the executive powers, etc., and the separation of powers, etc., uh, doctrine, and and they're trying to give effect to what it is Parliament intended, right? So I, I won't perhaps place that burden so much on the judiciaries in the context of the interpretation because uh, they are carrying out their job as adjudicators, but it's the way in which then legislation is, I guess, in a way, uh, watered down. Uh, for example, after the Malaysian Solution case and also after the CPCF case, there was, uh, you know, the Act, the Migration Act was again amended, uh, and a whole the, the the interpretation or definition of refugees, for example, was was provided by the Act, which did not require any reference back to the Convention. Although it was a similar interpretation, uh, the fact that it they did, you know, uh, they provided for, if you want, the Australian interpretation within the Act. Uh, which had parallels to the international one, but had to be cited in the context of the Australian law, um, in itself can be, does sort of, you know, um, uh, demonstrate the controlled uh, that they want in the context of even the interpretation of refugees locally. So the, pre- so the precedent from international law can't be used in that context. So I think we have to finish up because we're almost in time for our next guest. Thank you so much, Jasmine, for coming on today. Yeah, thank you. Shahrazad, did you want to ask a quick question? Um, look, it won't be quick, so maybe we can delve into it um, uh, next week. I mean, in two weeks. In two weeks, <laughs> yes. <laughs> next in a fortnight. In a fortnight. Excellent. Thank you for having me, and, and do reflect on in terms of World Refugee Week, uh, in terms yes. of those who are not so advantageous. Oh, that's yes. right. And we should say, to find out more about Refugee Week, do you have any links for people to follow, Jasmine? Well, there's a lot. I think, the, like, the Refugee uh, Council here in Melbourne, for example, they have got a few activities happening, a few movies being screened at the Nova Cinema. Well, um, actually, we've got someone coming in just after you. There you go. Who's, talk, who's going to talk about... Um, the uh, one of the docos on the Sahrawi struggle oh, of Western okay. Sahara in Morocco. So Excellent. Um, that will be um, uh, good. But also, um, if people want to find out more about the, the Global Compact yes. and that sort of thing, like beyond, beyond Refugee Week, yeah. uh, where can they go? Um, well, I think I think the Color Center, uh, UNSW uh, in Sydney, they have, you know, they're really focusing uh, on this area and there are quite a number of fact sheets and podcasts by the various, uh, you know, highly esteemed uh, presenters and speakers that they have uh, hosted. Uh, and they hold a conference every year, I think in November, where, you know, last year this was a very much a live issue uh, in terms of the con- theme of the conference. And, um, and it's still an ongoing matter because many of the academics and researchers, they are really looking into this issue in terms of its development. So, yes, yeah, so look at the, look at the Calvo Center at UNSW um, would be a good reference point. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you.
Tune in, dig deep and clean up by purchasing some fantastic discounted gardening books from 3CR's online garden store. We have books on water-wise gardening, organic vegetables, roses, climbers and creepers and even clematis. It's easy. Just go to our website, 3cr.org.au, and follow the links on the front page. Don't have internet access? Call the station during business hours between 9 and 5, and we'll post out a catalogue in the mail. All proceeds help keep Melbourne's favourite gardening show on air for another year. Tune in 7.30am every Sunday morning. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op, 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. marks 20 years since senior traditional owner Yvonne Margarula invited supporters to come to Mirar Country within Kakadu National Park to blockade the proposed Jabaluka uranium mine. Thousands answered the call. The mine was stopped. To commemorate this extraordinary anniversary, Gunjaitme Aboriginal Corporation and the Australian Conservation Foundation have produced a gorgeous commemorative calendar. Standing strong, Jabaluka 20 years is a piece of history you don't want to miss. Order your copy today at mirar.net. That's M-I-R-A-R-R dot net, a 3CR supporter. CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours.
Just then, uh, to Deg Gri, uh, oh, sorry, to Sheikh Lo, and that was Deg Gri, uh, the song Deg Gri. Um, so next up, we have uh, Gabby Alamin, who is the secretary uh, of the Australian Western Sahara Association, um, and she's going to be talking to us about not only what's going on in Western Sahara in Morocco, uh, well, in the area um, that is claimed by Morocco. Um, she will also be talking about a film that's screening as part of the Refugee Week um, at Nova Cinema tomorrow night called Gr- Rifles or Graffiti, uh, which is a documentary that chronicles Morocco's occupation of, of the territory. Um, so before we get into it, um, can you tell us a bit about the work that the Australian Western Sahara Association does? Yes. Uh, good morning, everybody. Um, yes, yeah, so at Western Sahara... Australia Western Sahara Association, um, we try to um, increase the awareness uh, about Western Sahara and the Sahrawis, especially um, here in Australia, as it's really, it's, it's, uh, it's far from, from Western Sahara, so not too many people know about Western Sahara. And we also um, promote the uh, self-determination for the Sahrawi people. Um, and so I suppose let's let, let, let's talk about that. So what what happened in Western Sahara? What's the what's the, not many people uh, would know much about it. Um, so could you give us a, a small history lesson? Yes, sure. Uh, so Western Sahara is a known self-governing territory. It's located in North Africa, and uh, according to us, it's colonized by Morocco. And uh, so in 1975. Sahara was a previously Spanish colony. Spain left Sahara and then uh, Morocco came and invaded Western Sahara. Um, the, uh, the United, um, sorry, the International Court of Justice uh, had ruled that Western Sahara um, and the Sahara we should have referendum for self-determination. However, Morocco um, never did that. And uh, so until now, it's still... Uh, now it's like Moroccan, um, Moroccan, um, uh, basically Moroccans are occupying Western Sahara. Now it's like Moroccan colony and the Sahrawi people are still, str- still struggling to, um, to vote for their self-determination. Mm. Um, and um, so the Moroccan, um, when in in seventy five, when they when they did uh, come to uh, colonize uh, Western Sahara, um, the King King Hassan II, who was the king of Morocco at the time, um, 
used a, an, an interesting way to colonise the, the territory, um, something called the Green March. Yes, yes. All the Sahrawis, we know that, that we, we know and we remember the Green March. Uh, so basically what happened is that so, Sahrawis are originally nomads. Uh, so what Hassan... Hassan II did is uh, he brought a lot of Moroccan settlers and he marched to, uh, towards Western Sahara. Uh, there is an interview, a famous interview for, uh, of the king saying that um, if there is any resistance by the Polisari or the Sahrawis, he said that the expression, we would eat them. So what happened is uh, Sahrawis did not want to be part of Morocco and what uh, Morocco did is uh, he starts bombing, they start bombing people with Nepal, and so people f- flee the country, flee their home, homeland, and they became refugees in Algeria. A lot of them died, a lot of civilians, a lot of women and children died, including my uncle. Um, yeah, so it's a, he called it a green march, but it was actually just genocide. Mm. And now there's still a lot of people that live in the refugee camps in Tindouf in, in um, Algeria. Yes, yes. So uh, the Sahrawi population now is divided. Um, the half of the Sahrawis live under Moroccan occupation in Western Sahara. The other half, including my family, uh, they live in refugee camps in Algeria and still waiting for a referendum for their self-determination show so they can go back to their homeland. And the referendum was supposed to take place in the 90s. Yeah, it was... Um, supposed to take place after the ceasefire in 1991. However, until today, it hasn't been organized. And the reason is uh, the Sahrawis or the Polisari Front, which is uh, the representative of the Sahrawi people, and Morocco, they couldn't agree on who is actually Sahrawi to vote on the referendum. Uh, the United Nations tried to organize it in 1990. 98 and 1999, however they failed. And until now, it's still, um, you know, Sahrawis are still refugees. Mm. Um, and there's more and more Moroccan settlers that come in. in so Western, uh, Western Sahara is, is, is divided by a almost 3,000 kilometre wall, the berm. Um, and so one part is um, controlled by the Polisario Front, uh, Sahrawis, um, and the other part is um, occupied territories, the Moroccan-occupied yes. territories. And uh, from my understanding, there's um, more and more Moroccan settlers that come south. Yes, so what's, uh, what's going on there is uh, Morocco is Moroccans, or Mor- I would say, I wouldn't say Moroccans, I would say um, the Mor- Morocco, the government, are trying to um, Moroccanize Western Sahara. And that, uh, so they try to bring more settlers and they try to give them, um, like, benefits, like housing, um, Work, so they can stay there in Western Sahara, and you know that's why that's one of the ways to control the territory. But they are not Sahrawis, um, so we call them the settlers, and I think they should go back to Morocco. And 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 what about the Sahrawi populations in occupied territory in in the occupied zones? Yes, so there are a lot of Sahrawis there. Um, that's actually half of the Sahrawis there. Uh, Sahrawis there are they suffer human rights violation. Um, they don't have usually they don't have jobs. They get rejected for being Sahrawis. Um, 
there is not even one university in Western Sahara, not even one university. For them, when they get sick to get treatment, they have to go to Morocco cities, Moroccan cities to get treatment. So um, the population there, they are really angry. They are not happy about what's going on. And uh, they are just like, uh, they also want the referendum. Mm. Um, and so tell us a bit. So this is movie, uh, sorry, this is screening um, tomorrow night um, at Nova Cinema, um, which you will talk at um, afterwards um, in a Q&A session. Um, but uh, firstly, uh, can you tell us a bit about um, rifles or graffiti? What's the message behind that? Yes. So the message um, behind the movie is, uh, so the movie shows um, the two the two Sahrawi population, the one in the refugee camp and the one in the in the occupied Western Sahara. Um, and the message is that Sahara, we Sahrawis are really peaceful. We believe in known uh, violent way of resistance. Um, however, it has been more than 40 years that we are st- still waiting for the referendum and some people are getting tired. They, they just enough for them. So some people are um, leaning towards going back to the war. Um, however, in general, we, we want uh, this conflict to be, you know, resolved peacefully. Mm. Um, and um, I suppose if people want to uh, get involved in the association or find out more, um, what, what can they do? Yes, so um, I encourage people to come and watch the movie. It's a very interesting. In the movie, um, the Sahrawi, they speak Spanish, Arabic, French and English, so it's very interesting. Um, and uh, so also they can get involved if they can Google the Western Sahara, Australia Western Sahara Association and, uh, you know, give us a message or call us and uh, we'll be able to help them. Great. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me and uh, I hope that you guys come and watch the movie. I'll I'll, I'll be there. Perfect. (laughs) Thank you. you. It's hip-hop, blues, reggae, jazz, opera, roots, curry or world music you're into, 3CR's music menu is serving it up to you. You're with Music Sans Frontier, music from around Australia and around the world. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Great Voices. You're listening to Hits Sister Hop on 3CR 855 AM. Music matters on 3CR, 12 noon every Friday. Keep these diverse tunes on the air by subscribing to 3CR. Call 94198377. The newspaper shout, a new style is born. Listen to Rock and Roots, 2am till 6, every Sunday morning on 8.55am. Melbourne's Community Radio, 3CR. Make me the color, get my rock and shoes. I'm gonna rock away all my blues. We're rocking. We're rocking. We're rocking. Rocking this joint tonight. Going down to the corner, see what it's all about. Gonna rock and roll, gonna jump and chow. We're rocking. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, 3CR Digital, or streaming online via www.3cr.org.au. So, so 
There's a new union about town. They're called Hospo Voice, and they've uh, started running in the last few months. And I guess their tack- what their aim is, or their goals, are to tackle wage theft uh, and harassment in the workplace, which is often rife in the hospitality sector. So joining us today to talk about Hospo Voice uh, and their campaigns is Kim Chibnall. Kim is a hospitality worker and a member and leader of Hospo Voice. Welcome, Kim. Welcome, Kim. Are you there, Kim? Yes. Hi. Hi. Thanks. Sorry about that, Kim. Uh, <laughs> welcome. So let's start off by talking about the new union, Hospo Voice. How did it come about? Um, so basically it's come about because it's become increasingly apparent that um, the industry needs to change. Um if you talk to any person who works in hospitality, either themselves or someone they know, has experienced either sexual harassment or wage theft or both. Um, and so we started this movement to make sure that we can make employers accountable and um, create real positive change. And what are the, some of the campaigns you're running at the moment? Uh, so at the moment, there's a really strong focus on combating wage theft, um, basically by um, holding employees accountable, like naming and shaming. Um, I don't know if you saw yesterday, um, there's recently another cafe that's been found in the Melbourne CBD to be um, just not paying their workers at all, which is awful. Um, Not paying their workers at all? Yeah. So um, it's called, cafe called Perry Little Sister in the CBD. Um, They went months without paying their employees, which obviously makes it incredibly stressful for them because that means they can't pay rent. Um, like just going about their daily life becomes incredibly difficult when employers aren't even paying their stuff at all. Um, mm. and, yeah. And hospitality for, for people that work in it know well and for those that don't, it's often really insecure employment. So there's um, no contracts you're often off the books, uh, getting paid cash in hand, uh, getting paid below minimum wage. Yeah. Uh, and so I mean, are there education campaigns that Hospo Voice will be running about this? Yeah, so uh, the Hospo Voice website um, has all of these online tools to help people better become better informed. Um, so there's a pay checker, so you can go online and see what, your award should be because that's also one of the challenges is trying to figure out what you should actually be paid per hour. The awards can be confusing, especially if you're not sure um, if you're part-time or casual or full-time. And then also there's online tools to um, have a diary of harassment if you you need to keep a record of things that are happening to you at work um, in case you ever wanted to follow that up. Um, formally um, yeah and so there's all sorts of like online tools as well there's a, going to be a forum so that um, people at Hospo Voice can answer any questions that you might have um, as well yeah so it's a really useful way to um, help help inform people in the industry Great. And some unions, sort of bigger and I guess more well-funded unions, uh, offer advocacy and support services. But Hospo Voice is still quite new and is all volunteer run. Is that right? Yeah, so I'm a volunteer. Um, and it is, it's very small, um, but there's 
so many volunteers and so many people getting involved that it's um, pretty amazing, really. Excellent. Yeah. And will some of those volunteers be offering uh, support, maybe like negotiation with employers, or at the moment is that sort of is it still in its infancy? Um, still in its infancy, as far as I'm aware. I don't think that um, volunteers would be um, negotiating on behalf of other people. That would probably be more. Um, and that's a little bit out of our league, I think, at the moment. Um, but yeah, maybe sometime in the future. I'm not sure. Great. And I guess one of the uh, sort of types of campaigns that Hospo Voice is running are things that are singularly targeting, I guess, individual workplaces. So uh, listeners may know about Barry um, and also Chin Chin, so these kind of more high-profile cases where uh, workers from different venues are speaking out against individual employers. So is I guess is that a one of the targets of Hospo Voice in sort of pinpointing individual employers to sort of then make examples? Um, I think it's um, because the movement is so new and it's so young, um, it's, it's one of the most effective ways of getting attention, getting media attention, and also um, it also shows to people in the industry that are working in the industry that are experiencing these kinds of things that, there can be consequences if they speak out, um, that they can help create change that um, I think it's sort of, it offers, I think it offers a form of empowerment um, by, by me seeing all of this happening and by being involved, it meant that I was able to speak out against the cafe I was working at and not being paid properly. Um, so I think it's um, getting the conversation started and getting people to know that there's something they can do about it. Mm-hmm. And it must be hard, I guess, for workers to speak out. Uh, do, do workers express any concerns about, particularly if you're not on a contract role or an ongoing or casual uh, contract, do workers ever express fear about losing their jobs if they speak out? Yeah, absolutely. Like that's, um, that's the main fear, really, I think, when you are in a casual role, you know that your shifts can be cut if you speak out. Um, it's definitely a legitimate fear that a lot of people have, especially because when you're not being paid properly, you can't save money like you could if you were. Um, so it means you often living paycheck to paycheck. You don't have the financial security net. Um, so it does make speaking out incredibly difficult. Um, I guess my advice or what I would say to that is that you don't, I don't think in the long term you lose anything by speaking out. Um, the benefits of speaking out far outweigh, I think, the fear of not doing anything, speaking from personal experience on it. I think it, I think it's worth it in the end. Mm. And I guess some of the results that have come out of the campaigns from uh, Hospo Voice at the moment where people have um, spoken out against uh, wage theft have been that while there's been threats to actually lose their job, they've actually been reinstated once I guess there's been more media. Is that right around what happened with Barry? Um, yeah, I'm not 100% sure what happened, but I think I think they were. Um, it also becomes... I think it becomes um, almost worse for the employers as well after all of that to not 
to fire someone after they've spoken out about what they're doing, which is illegal in the first place. Um, so I think it's in the employer's best interest to not to have happy employees, I guess. Um, so yeah, I think, I think in, I'm not sure what happened in the case of Barry, but it also does, that was, um, I can also understand employee, uh, employees walking away from that too, because it turned into quite a sort of bizarre media um, situation as well, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, I don't think I don't think it necessarily means that you um, you lose your job by speaking out. Yeah, and if people want to get involved, how can they go about it? Um, so it's really easy. Um, so you can join, you can sign up, um, and we're still signing up founding members, which means that you can sign up for the first month and your first three months of membership are free. So that means you access access all our online tools um, and we're on Facebook so there's a hospital voice Facebook page which has all our upcoming events um, and all the things we're up to um, and even if you wanted to come along to a meeting everyone is super lovely um, and it's you know um, very welcoming and um, empowering um, place to come along to um, yeah so it's super easy to get involved you can just like google search it yeah and i think the website is at www.hospovoice.org.au is that right yes yes yep. excellent well thank you kim we're out of time thanks for speaking with us today about hospo voice and good luck thank you so much thanks very much bye bye come on come in and hear the best live pop music from around town it's your chance to tune in, so come on, come in. Live on Thursdays, 3pm, 3CR, 8.55am.
Aisha by Baita Agbe, which is a Saharan um, uh, collective or or musical group, I should say. (laughs) Um, So we had a pretty jam-packed show today um, uh, where we heard from a bunch of people. um, And lastly, we were just speaking uh, with Kim uh, Shibnow, who is a hospitality worker and member and leader of Hospo Voice. Um, but the Radiothon. So, um, we, um, overall, uh, thank you so much for all, um, our listeners out there who, uh, who, uh, pledged their support, um, and donated to 3CR. Uh, we still, uh, overall, the station has raised more than, um, $154,000, um, of our $250,000 target, which is, um, great. Thank you so much. Um, but we're still, we're still, um, we still have about uh, 100000 to go. So if there's anyone who's uh, super rich and who has $100,000 <laughs> lying around, just, you know, give it to us. <laughs> I'm sure all of our 3CR listeners are yes. super rich people that have hundreds of thousands of dollars. <laughs> but, yeah, you can still, you can still donate um, easily by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate or you can call us on 94198377 um, or you can send us a text at Oh four eight eight nine three zero eight double five, and that's all we have time for today. Yes. Um, tune in uh, tomorrow for more uh, breakfast, um, and next week we'll be back next week. Excellent. Next up, we have Lost in Science. <laughs>